I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This past week, the human race reached a milestone. There's now an estimated 8 billion people living on the planet. Overall, less people are living in extreme poverty, and we have generally better access to healthcare, food, and clean water. Half of the population still just lives in seven countries, and it could take about 15 years to hit the next milestone of 9 billion. For more on what to know as we still face several challenges as the population continues to grow, we'll speak to Steph Kite, politics reporter at Axios. As you mentioned, we are now at 8 billion people living on the planet, and um, we continue to grow as a global population. But one thing that's interesting is that we are growing slower than we have in the past. This is due to falling fertility rates in a lot of high-income countries. So women in places, including the U.S., are having fewer children, which is slowing the global population growth by a little bit. And we've seen that rate continue to fall, but we are still growing And because of the falling fertility rates, we're also older as a population. That's something that demographers cover really closely. So the Earth's median age right now is 30 years old, 30.2 years old. And that's compared to just 20.6 years old in 1974 when the population was just 4 billion. So it took about 12 years for the population to climb from 7 to 8 billion. They say it probably will be about 15 years before we hit 9 billion. So, I mean, a billion people in 15 years, that sounds like a lot. But I mean, that it's, as you mentioned, it's a little bit of a slowing there. And this I didn't know. So half the population lives in just seven countries. That's correct. We have half the population, more than half the population in just China, India, the U.S., Indonesia, Pakistan, Nigeria, and Brazil. And that's only slightly more spread out than it used to be. There was a point in time in in 1974 when the population was only in half the population lived in just about five countries. So we're a little bit spread out than we used to be. But still, those seven countries are where more than half the population lives. Yeah. And India is set to become the country with the highest population overtaking China pretty soon. I guess they say maybe by next year, but that will Mm -hmm. be coming uh, very quickly as well. And 
you know, when we talk about the global population and we talk about global things happening, you think about climate change, you think about less resources going around to everybody. You know, you mentioned some of those things, why we've gotten to 8 billion people are living longer, better access to healthcare and food and, and all this stuff. But still, as we continue to grow, you know, those finite resources start to dwindle and, and it's harder to spread them across with more people. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of people who, when they they hear about the population growing so quickly, it can be a cause for fear for some people, that they're afraid that the world cannot handle that many people, that that's going to lead to more problems, that we're going to see worsening poverty, worsening healthcare, all these things. But it was interesting because I spoke to a couple of different population experts and demographers who really assured me that the growing population is not in and of itself a bad thing. And while there always will continue to be challenges, especially in particular parts of the world that maybe are lower income or are seeing some of the impacts of climate change more directly already, there are also a lot of signs that point to life improving around the world. We've actually seen the percentage of people living in extreme poverty, which is measured at just under $2 a day, has actually declined significantly over time from about 44% of the population in 1974 to 10% most recently. So, you know, there is a mixed bag, of course, but generally when you look at a lot of the global statistics, life is improving and we can continue in that direction even as the population grows. What did some of the experts you spoke to say about climate change? And and then um, this is another interesting one about a record 100 million people have been forcibly displaced from their homes. So we're looking at uh, the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. We're looking at the Russian invasion of Ukraine that has a, a big impact on people. Absolutely. And of course, you know, the impacts from the pandemic are still long lasting. And there were some reports that showed that the pandemic undid some of the progress that we had seen on education, healthcare, and poverty goals globally. So there are certainly real challenges that we still face. As you pointed out, of course, climate change continues to pose one of the biggest threats to humanity. And as some of the lower income parts of the world advance and advance their economies, there is some concern that that could complicate our efforts to to reduce our impact on our world um, on climate change. And as you pointed out, there are record 100 million people who have been forcibly displaced from their homes. And, you know, as someone who covers some of these immigration and refugee trends, that has been an issue as countries try to adapt to more displaced people and trying to provide for them and make sure that they have a home to live. So mm-hmm. as we progress in a lot of ways as a global population, there are still these very real challenges. And it really is going to depend on where you live, what that experience is. Steph Kite, politics reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. In telecommunications news, dialing zero to reach an operator or getting directory assistance from 411 is soon to be a thing of the past. How many people even use those services now as smartphones have made them obsolete? Starting January 1st, AT&T is ending the service to landline customers in 21 states. Wireless users aren't even offered it. For more on a brief history of 411, we'll speak to Joe Constance, reporter at Bloomberg News. So AT&T stopped offering those services to uh, wireless customers over a year ago. So cell phones and, you know, other telecoms are doing the same thing. They're all kind of phasing out these services. And as you mentioned, a lot of younger folks don't necessarily even know what, you know, the origins of what, you know, getting the 411 means. Personally, writing this story and reporting it out, I learned so much about landlines (laughs) and switchboards and all of these things, which was really interesting for me. 
But yeah, so a lot of these, again, you know, these things that are on the whole no longer necessary are the sun is setting on them. And, you know, you see the same thing with pay phones, phone booths, phone books. Um, right. All of these sorts of things. Yeah, I, I mentioned uh, right before we got on for the interview, I, I myself am 39. I remember a lot of this stuff, but, you know, I, obviously the smartphones and everything blows everything out of the water. But I remember a time where, you know, you had to reset clocks and they say, call the phone number. It'll tell you exactly what the time is. And it says, you know, at the tone, the time is so and so. You know, those are all things that have kind of gone by the wayside now. Although I think that phone number still does work. But tell us a little bit more about kind of, uh, you know, how this whole thing did get started because it is very interesting. I mean, there was a time where there was hundreds of thousands of operators that were employed to do this stuff, to do switchboard work, to connect people. And uh, I mean, I think now we're like at uh, 550 people are employed still doing some of this, but there's like a long history to all of it. It goes back a long, a long way. The first telephone exchange was founded in 1878 in New Haven, Connecticut. And really that's what exactly, you know, like you just said, there were operators at a switchboard and somebody would call up and they would uh, ask to be connected to somebody else. And and that could be a business or or, um, the police, the post office. And so that's how it started. And automatic or dial telephones didn't really come into the picture until later. So it was you really needed a human intermediary for much of the beginning of the 20th century. And, you know, the first operators were teen boys, but they were a little rowdy and and not the most polite. So the owners of the the phone companies quickly shifted to hiring uh, women for the role. So it was one of the few professions that women were allowed to hold at that time. And so there was kind of a a long history of the role and how it gained prominence and then started to sunset. And then, uh, so, and you may also also made mention in in about 2000, so Verizon had to start doing some automated menu changes for customers because uh, these operators, traditional operators that were paid to route calls, just couldn't answer the questions that people were coming up with anymore. People were coming up with crazy things, you know, what's the temperature? How long do I cook turkey? a turkey for? And, and, and so, you know, even as far back as that, 22 years now, right, things were already starting to change with this. They just started to realize it wasn't as efficient anymore. And so, yeah, back in 2000, they, they moved to an automated menu um, because they realized that would just be more efficient. So they could use the operators really for the things they, they actually were being paid to do. And so operators, especially in the 1970s and 80s, you know, another big role that they had was routing emergency calls. So, you know, 911 was not available in much of the country until, you know, again, later um, in the 20th century. So that was a big part of their job as well. So they were still kind of doing that sort of work really up until kind of the 90s and early 2000s. Well, like as we as we said, uh, January first, this is going to be going away for AT and T customers in twenty one states. And uh, you know, just to kind of prove the point, right? They have about two hundred million subscribers to their wireless service. Their landline operations are just about eight point five million customers. So even that is uh, continuing to shrink a lot more. Um, well, for now, four one one, and the operators still are, are going away. Joe Constance, reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs) 
Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Finally for this week, we've seen the fall of crypto exchange FTX quickly wipe out the value of the company, the billions of dollars that its CEO was worth, and it's left scores of others without a way to access their money and assets. FTX has now filed for bankruptcy, and the new CEO says he's never seen such a complete failure of corporate controls. Some experts have said that it's even possible that people could never recover their funds. For now, it's caused more volatility in the crypto market and caused more values to drop. For more on all the fallout from the FTX collapse, we'll speak to Joel Khalili, crypto reporter at Wired. It's a complex and kind of quite quickly evolving story, but if we start with FTX, so FTX is one of the world's largest cryptocurrency exchanges. So this is a place that you might go to swap regular currency for cryptocurrency and vice versa. It was led by uh, a CEO known as Sam Bankman-Fried or SBF, goes by his initials. And now until recently, Sam Bankman-Fried was very highly regarded in the crypto space. He was considered a prodigy, and he's been able to attract investment from some of the biggest investors in the business. So this is a, a highly credible figure. Um, he's also spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill, actually, um, lobbying um, for crypto regulation in Washington. So this is a highly respected figure in charge of FTX. He was donating a ton of money to Democrats. And as you mentioned, right, a, a big respected figure. The crypto exchange at the beginning of the year was valued at $32 billion. I think his personal mm-hmm. fortune was like somewhere in the range of uh, $16 billion or something. So, yeah, just a huge player in that whole thing. To start from the beginning, it, it, essentially what happened was that FTX was proper bankruptcy after finding itself unable to meet a, a surge in withdrawals. Um, it gets a little complex, but in effect, the cause of this surge was a, a crisis of confidence in, in FTX's accounts. And that began in, in early November with a report published by Coindesk. So this report highlighted an uncomfortably close financial relationship between FTX and its sister company, Alameda Research. Now, this sister company was, was holding on its balance sheet, many billions of dollars worth of a token known as FTT, which was itself created by FTX, and it cannot be readily turned back into, into cash. It's, it's not a liquid asset. So this creates a level of risk. The collapse itself, though, kind of began in earnest with a tweet from the CEO of Binance, which is a rival exchange. And now this tweet uh, announced that Binance would offload a large quantity of FTT, which in turn sent the price of this token plummeting creating panic around the kind of financial health of both Alameda and FTX, and then leading people to rush to withdraw their funds. Unable to process all, the, all these withdrawals, FTX was then ultimately pushed into bankruptcy. That's a kind of short, crypt version yeah. of what's and, happened here. And so that initial part, right, people were cre- uh, you know, uh, freaking out. They started pulling out all of their assets in there. 
And, uh, you know, going on that run, then they really started looking into what was happening there at FTX. Mm. And then they realized there was all sorts of other shady stuff that was going down. And they were lending out, uh, as you mentioned, billions of dollars to their sister company to fund risky bets. And, you know, the company was just not being run well at all. It would appear so. It would appear so. And so today there's been new light kind of shed on, on the severity of the situation. There was a, a court filing published by the new CEO who's, who's stepped in to essentially to, to oversee the bankruptcy proceedings. So his name's John Ray III. Um, and actually, this is the guy that oversaw the liquidation of Enron, you know, one of the most infamous uh, corporate failures of all time. But in this court filing that he published today, that he said that you know, never before in his career had he witnessed a, a failure of corporate controls on this scale, which is really saying something. It, it paints a, a, a really bleak picture. And so where are investors in FTX left right now? Reuters reported that at least a billion dollars of customer funds are missing from FTX. There's a class action lawsuit that's going on right now saying that the consumers collectively sustained over $11 billion in damages. How much is money is missing from here? It's not yet entirely clear how much was lost because, as I say, that there appears to have been some very strange accounting going on, going on here. Bankman Freed, the FTX founder, has himself claimed that there was an $8 billion shortfall. What is clear is that you know, hundreds of thousands of customers who are storing crypto with FTX, you know, both regular people like you and I and, and also institutions, have now lost access to their funds. So, you know, some of the people that I've spoken to over the last week you know, have a decade's worth of savings, some of them 15 years worth of savings tied up in FTX. And, and that's money that, you know, they may never see again. It's a, a really serious situation. Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's explore that a little bit more, because you did speak to a number of people that did have their stuff set up there on FTX. And, and some of them even saw, you know, some of that, uh, the craziness happening and, and they try to go in too, but they were locked out. Right. So now their mm -hmm. coins, their, their money, their assets, whatever it is that's in there is locked in there and they couldn't do that. Tell me some of the conversations you had with those people. Sure. So one um, one individual I spoke to, he he asked to be referred to as Samuel. Samuel is his first name, but he asked to be referred to only by first name to preserve his anonymity. But Samuel lives somewhere in in Southeast Asia. He's currently between jobs, which means that money is is tight. But on FTX, he held twenty five thousand dollars worth of a cryptocurrency called XRP, which some listeners may be familiar with. But in his situation, he, he kind of first caught wind of, of, of a problem in early November, as I say, with the Coindesk report that came out in early November, there were kind of whispers of problems at FTX. So Samuel caught wind of these reports, but dismissed them as what's known in crypto circles as FUD, which is a, you know, that stands for fear, uncertainty and doubt, but it's, it's used to kind of describe uh, exaggerated reports just right. designed to kind of sow discord. He dismissed those reports as, uh, as FUD. And equally, at uh, this time in early November, Sam Bankman-Fried was, was tweeting, um, he tweeted uh, on November 7th that, that FTX was fine, that assets are fine. So he was actively kind of moving to, to uh, create the sense that you know, reports had been completely overblown. Um, and in Samuel's case, by the time he then, uh, on, on, November 8th, on November 8th, when withdrawals were suspended, by the time he attempted to extricate his funds from FTX, it was too late. The, the shutters had come down and, and you know, with it. That's 10 years worth of savings for um, yeah, and, for and, and, you know, that's kind of the sense that I get from a lot of crypto traders, a lot of in crypto enthusiasts, right? They're always riding the wave. They're always really into what they're doing. And, and they will be quick to dismiss a lot of some of these warning signs, right? As you mentioned, as FUD. They're all about uh, to the moon, you know, and, and holding strong on it. So you can see, you know, if, if you're trusting somebody like Bankman Freed, and he's saying mm. everything's okay. They're going to be like, well, everything's okay. Let's let's keep going with this. And some of the other people that you spoke to, even still, you know, because a lot of people are in the lurch with where their funds currently stand. 
they said, you know, there's really no clear precedent in, in some of these scenarios that people will ever be able to recover some of their funds. That's right. I mean, the, the common comparison, you know, at, at the moment is it's with the situation with Mt. Gox. And so this is a, a really famous case, but a, another crypto uh, crypto exchange that, that went bankrupt back in 2014. You know, even now, eight and a bit years later, the legal battle over the redistribution of those assets is, is still raging on. So, you know, for the for the victims of the FTX collapse, we're looking at the 2030s here before they kind of see a resolution. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's so crazy just to, to kind of think of that it would take so long like that. So what does this do for the crypto industry at large? I mean, I know there's a, a lot of confidence lost because of something like this. We're seeing, you know, prices of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies mm-hmm. continue to drop. You know, obviously Bitcoin, the, the all-time high of whatever it was, $67,000 is uh, just a fraction of that now too. So, so this collapse of the FTX exchange, what does that do for cryptocurrency at large? Sure. So actually, the, the, in, in some ways, the kind of second order effects, the, the ripple effects will be what's most interesting to watch here. So, you know, not only was FTX intertwined from a financial perspective with a number of other companies in the crypto ecosystem that are now kind of in trouble by association, the crypto lender BlockFi being a, a prime example, but the collapse has also created a, a broader crisis of confidence in crypto generally that has wiped, you know, many billions of dollars from the markets. So in the days immediately after the news first broke, um, you know, Bitcoin and Ether, the two largest cryptocurrencies, they both shed more than 10% of their value. Another populist uh, cryptocurrency, Solana, was value was cut in half. Elsewhere, we've also seen crypto lender Genesis halt withdrawals earlier this week, you know, citing a kind of abnormally large quantity of withdrawals triggered by these unprecedented like, market conditions. So the concern is, is that FTX will buy um, the ripple effects of the, F- of the FTX collapse, the crisis of confidence in markets more broadly, will then trigger a chain reaction of collapses, uh, each of which could be kind of equally serious. Wow. And, and still, a lot of people say, hey, well, this can really bring us down in the immediate right now. A lot of people still very much in favor of cryptocurrency, and they think that there will be eventually be a, a bigger rebound. As I mentioned, there's lawsuits all associated with this. Even celebrities that were doing commercials for FTX are uh, uh, put in these lawsuits as well. And then the matter of people getting some of their money back. Well, this is a a big one. We'll see what continues to happen here. Joel Khalili, crypto reporter at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust 
into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 